just so you know, there's several, a couple of new people. So what we try to do on Wednesday nights, we, we're a confessional church, which means we believe in the Bible. And that's our, the Bible is our, um, not just our guide, but this is where, where we do everything by the Bible. But this confession is basically a sort of a small compendium of what we believe. And it's put into something that we can give out to people and say, hey, this is, this is not the Bible, but this is kind of what we believe about the Bible. And so we're walking through this just trying to teach the best we can and understand ourselves the doctrines that we espouse so that we don't raise, uh, we don't just put a church here and have a bunch of um, ignorant people, and I say that not uh, so derogatorily, but just ignorant not knowing what we believe. You know, I want my kids to know what we believe. And that's what I love about this. I know I've said it before, but I could give them this and say, this is what I believe. But at the same time, there needs to be some um, delineation about what we believe. Because everybody, well, any kind of religion that's um, not pagan, for the most part, has a book that they believe in. And a lot of people say they believe the Bible. But this is sort of what we believe about the Bible. So that's why we, that's why we're doing this. And I know y'all have heard that a lot, but um, I just wouldn't want anybody to be confused and think, well, that church is weird. They don't use the Bible. They use this little bitty booklet. But we do use the Bible. But we're teaching from this to try to make sense out of what we believe. Because, you know, uh, that Bible's big, and there's a lot of stuff in it. And you read through there, and you're like, you're, you know, well, what is this about? And why is this, what does this mean? And one of the things that we're, where we are now in our confession, I think helps us to understand what the whole Bible's about. This idea of a covenant, that God is a covenant-making God and He's a covenant-keeping God. And He has, um, that's the way He has dealt with His people. And He has come down, as we read in our confession, condescended among men to fellowship with us and to teach us uh, who he is mainly, but to give us um, the understanding that he has provided for our salvation. And not only has he provided a way for us to be saved, but he's provided all the means necessary for us to be saved. In other words, um, Jesus came, and that was important, but not only did he come, everything he did, living, being obedient, to the law, dying, raising again, ascending to heaven, and one day coming back, all those things uh, have provided the, the means for us to be saved. And um, even above that, he has promised that um, those of us who are to be redeemed, he will come get us and awaken us to the truth of the gospel so that we'll believe it. And awaken us to the truth of who Jesus is so we'll believe it. And we need that. And so let's look at this um, again, if you have this little uh, confession with you on page 22 is where we are and we'll just start in, in seven, section 7 1 again even though we've covered that two times but I do want to get to section 2 though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator the distance between God and these creatures is so great that they can never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension, is what I just talked about. And he has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. So God's coming down and 
dealing with man started in the garden, but uh, after the fall, it it came to us through covenants. This is how God dealt with us, through a covenant framework, and how he spoke to man, and how he gave man his uh, plan for not only their salvation, but also for their life. It keeps going. Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, so this is back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, that first sin that has been passed down to all of us so that we're all now born in sin. We're born um, because our mothers and daddies were sinners, we're sinners, and it's been that way since the Garden. And um, we choose to sin because we are sinful. And because of that, there's this great separation between us and God. But it pleased God, pleased the Lord, to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. On their part, he requires faith in him, in Christ, that they may be saved. And he promises to give his Holy Spirit to all who who are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. Now, I don't think y'all got to this section last week, right? So, we've spent a lot of time talking about this. But I want to go back one more time and just point this out. Because I know I talked about this with y'all last time I was here. But where we are, we've got the fall, which brought all of us under condemnation (coughs) for sin. And the way I always do this with kids, I'm like, hey, here's God. He's holy, and all these things, perfect, righteous, all the things we're not. And there tends to be a lot of preaching and teaching in churches that say, hey, just be holy, be righteous, do good, be good. But what we find out is the Bible says, because of this, you can't really do that. You can't do things that will cause God to look down and say, man, there's a good person, I think I'll save him. There's a good lady. I'll say, there's a righteous lady. We're all incapable of getting to God. So what happens is God comes down instead and makes our sin possible, or not really possible. He makes sin be forgiven because of what Jesus has done, right? And so all of a sudden we go from being sinful and without hope to you have Jesus who's come who's basically God in the flesh, and he perfectly obeys the law because we couldn't. He doesn't sin because we do. He does all things right, yet the world still crucifies him because that's just what simple, that's the best simple people can do with anything that's good and right is kill it, be away with it. So Jesus dies so that... All who believe in him, as the confession just said, and repent of their sins will be saved. But what we notice is that the confession says, on their part, he requires faith in Christ. So we're supposed to believe in Christ, but we can't because we don't want to. We'd rather believe in something else. We'd rather believe we can do something to get to God. We'd rather believe that I'm not really all that bad. I'm not as bad as some people. All the things that we've all thought about before. You know? And so God promises this to give his Holy Spirit to all who are ordained to eternal lives to make them willing and able to believe. 
So how how do people how did we all come to belief in Christ? We've talked about this before. We were made to believe in Him, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit did something to us because if not, this whole story seems outrageous. I mean, how would how does God become a man, live a perfect life, and die, and be buried and raised again? And how does that affect me? That's the way God's ordained it to happen. And if you have eyes to see that and faith to believe in that, it's because you're the one ordained to eternal life and God's given you that promise. And you might not can explain it, but suddenly you believe it. You believe that, yeah, really, there was a man 2,000 years ago who was God in the flesh and he died. He was buried, literally dead for three days but rose again. And you can't explain to people why you believe that. You just do. Because God has God has made you believe. That's pretty much what the whole Bible is about from beginning to end. It's this history of man falling, or God, the history of God creating, man sinning, falling, but then God taking all the necessary steps to get man back to himself. And so... What the framework of covenants without going too deep into the individual parts of it, the framework of, the, of these covenants that God has made with man is the history of God bringing his people to himself. So when you look at the Bible and you read, well, what is going on with this guy named Abraham? What's going on with Moses and all this law and stuff? Um, and what about David? Why is David such a big deal? And then you get to the New Testament, and everybody that's writing in the New Testament is saying over and over, here's what that was pointing to, Jesus. Here's what that was pointing to, Jesus. And, and suddenly it starts making sense and everything starts coming together. And so when we're trying to point out the importance of covenant, even though, and I've confessed this the last time I spoke to you, this is um this is still relatively new for me. I've been studying it for a while, but it's not something I grasp as well as other things because sometimes it's still I still my mind still wants to fight because I think I, I listened to last week's lesson and I heard some of your testimonies that you've never taught this before. And I mean, most of us weren't. I mean, we weren't taught about covenants. I never heard, except for I, I was familiar with covenant of marriage. That's the only time I usually heard the word. Um, but this idea that God has a plan that has um, always been settled in His heart and, and within the Trinity, and I know Jonathan is is going to plan on talking about that idea later. That God made a covenant with us because there's a covenant made within the Trinity. But he, he sort of lets us in on that. And so the Bible is just these glimpses of what's going to happen, and it has happened, and what will continue to happen until, well, for all eternity. And when we have that glimpse of it, and, and we see how God orchestrates it, and fulfills it, and fulfills it, and finally it comes to pass, complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So that everything, as the Bible says, has its yes in Jesus. He is the answer to whatever is missing. He is the fulfillment of those promises that are that are made. And so, 
the idea of, of covenant and, and God being the one that, or, that, that not only orchestrated but initiated the covenant and he's the one that keeps the covenant is important because if he didn't keep the covenant we'd be in a lot of trouble because we're not going to keep it, right? We're a covenant breaker is God's covenant keeper. In Jesus Christ, he keeps his covenant with us. And so when you see stuff in the New Testament where Jesus says things like, um, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Or I've never lost one that you've given, the Father has given me. I've kept all of them. He says that but based on all these promises that God's always made in covenant that he will be their God and they shall be his people. So it's not just a, you know, you don't open the New Testament and there's just this stuff dangling around out there. It is all intimately tied back to everything that God has done throughout all history. So that's why it matters. And um, you, you learn that no matter where you fall in some of this stuff, you've got to grasp this idea that the Bible is a, is a um, solid unit. It's not, we got Old Testament and the Old Testament God and New Testament and New Testament God. Because there's a tendency to do that, right? You look at Old Testament and you read all that stuff and think, man, that was pretty brutal. And it's like God's killing people. And it looks like there's all these rules that nobody can keep. Well, it, it gets us to understand that if we are going to be righteous on our own, then the only way to do it is to keep all those rules. But you can't. So, something has to happen to make me compatible with God so that he doesn't destroy me because he's perfectly holy and I'm not. So what God has done, again, he took upon himself to bring his son to earth and his son took all the punishment and judgment that we were supposed to get so that we get grace instead. And, and in, I think in a nutshell, I don't think that's wrong to say that that is sort of the covenant of grace, but um, I'm still trying to grasp it. I'm still trying to understand all of it because I think it, I see how important it is and how necessary it is, and I also see how it separates us as Baptists from in, anybody that's not Baptist, and it's very important in that in that regard. I mean, the, this idea of covenant. Um, well, I would say it separates us. It definitely separates us as Reformed Baptists from Baptists who are not Reformed. <laughs> but ba Baptists can be Baptists and not believe this. But I think you're going to run into some problems if that's the case. I think eventually uh, you're going to have. We can get to the same place, but I think there'll be a lot of a lot of uh, fogginess in getting to there if you don't understand this covenant framework which is why I want to grasp it better. So I'm learning along with you to, to, to get it. But um, I do think that this idea of covenant of grace, the idea is the salvific work of God. I mean, he's showing us that he never didn't have a plan. His plan has always been to save a people for himself. And I believe that plan didn't just sneak up on him after the garden. I think that was his plan. Somebody said this way, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong to say it this way. The cross didn't come because of the garden. The fall happened in the garden because the cross was in the, in the making. It was God's plan. So if you think about it in those terms, 
you understand that, you know, what has happened since Adam and Eve was not plan B. It's always been God's plan to redeem his people. Um, if Adam and Eve had kept the, the promise and the covenant of works and done, uh, not sinned, then I'd have to believe they would have been saved that way. Somehow, along with the tree of life, uh, they would have been saved. But they didn't. So, um, we have to conclude that that did surprise God. He's God, so he's not surprised. And he doesn't come to knowledge. He already has perfect knowledge. And so, that's why we took all that time to go back the first week and look at you know, depravity and sin and how if we don't have um, God intervene some way, then we're going to stay lost. And um, everybody would. If God doesn't intervene and, and awaken you to this truth, you'll be lost and apart from God. And so our hope is, uh, and we teach this truth of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ in hopes that people who do not believe in him will believe in him. Because um, no matter whether you ever learn about covenants or ever learn about all this confession, you do need to learn this, that apart from Jesus and believing in him, uh, there is no eternal life with God. So that's the only thing that matters, but we can't just say that's the only thing that matters. It is the most important thing, but then from there, as a child of God, you want to start learning more about who God is and what he's done. So, first and foremost, faith in Jesus Christ because there's no way any of us are good enough to get to God in any other way. I can't preach enough or pastor churches or plan enough churches or do nice things enough for God to say, no, no that's, good enough, that's good enough right there to get in. And I think we all acknowledge that. We know that. Man, we're, we're all, even in our best days, uh, and even when I'm doing good things, I'm thinking about something bad. You know, something like that. I can't even do a good deed without thinking about something bad. <laughs> I can't even come to church without thinking about something I shouldn't be thinking about. And so ultimately we realize that um, apart from grace, and that's what this covenant teaches us, if there wasn't God intervening from the top down, uh, there'd be no hope. But there is hope. So anyways, anybody want to say anything about that before we move any further? Amen. Amen. I gotta help me more than that. Huh? <laughs> um, I, of course, do. <laughs> Good. Um, so, if you look at uh, section two, um, what you see in the beginning, you've got the fall, which Jason was talking about, and then in this covenant of grace, you've got a condition that has to be met, which is faith. Um, but then, on top of that you have God supplying the condition, which is why we can rightly call it a covenant of grace, because um, faith apart, let's say if, if we were to do faith on our own, right, that would be a work. It would be a religious work, um, and therefore we somehow have merited ourselves salvation. That is not the doctrine of faith alone that we hold to. What we hold to is that faith is the means by which we are connected to Christ and that faith is supplied by God. 
and it is by that faith we're connected to Christ and therefore receive the benefits of Christ. So it is Christ who kept the law on our behalf, um, both the law from the covenant of works uh, as well as the law um, in the Mosaic covenant. He kept all of these things perfectly. Um, and he kept them to merit righteousness for us. And so when we're reading in Scripture, um, we are able to stand before God with righteousness. It says that we have the righteousness of God. Um, it is not a righteousness that we do or we earn, but it is a righteousness that we freely receive. Um, and then... I'll have more to say about this uh, when it's my turn to teach again, but you do see um, also the Old Covenant, and Jason kind of alluded to this, the Old Covenant, or, or I should say the Old Testament, all of that is pointing to Jesus. All of that is pointing forward. Um, the New Testament has as its backdrop um, the Old Testament. So unlike what certain televangelists that you will hear say, we cannot unhitch from the Old Testament because without the Old Testament, the New Testament makes no sense. Um, and in fact, a large portion of the New Testament refers back to the Old Testament, saying, okay, so you have, you have heard it said, or you have seen it written, or maybe it references back to Abraham. Um, well, it talks about Abraham being the man of faith. Well, if you don't have the Old Testament, who is Abraham? Or because Jesus the son of David, but if you don't have the Old Testament, who's David? So you see, we can't we can't separate these things like Jason was saying. It is a unit; they go together. Um, the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, but the Old Testament is the background for understanding the New Testament. You can't understand either one of them without the other. All right, go ahead. Jeremiah thirty-one, uh, where. Quoted in it Hebrews 8. literally says that uh, he's writing these things in our hearts. So basically it's no longer uh, something that's outside of us. It's all of a sudden uh, incorporated in us. Well, yeah, and, and, and the reference that you're making, this is actually the announcement of the new covenant right. that he's referencing, which is quoted in Hebrews 8. Um so even in the Old Testament the, is where the New Testament is announced. So we have to have both. Right. And, so and it's the same gospel all the way throughout. It's the same gospel in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Right. Exactly. There's a, there's a few verses here that really highlight what we're just talking about in the Bible, actually. Um, this is Romans 3. That's very familiar. Romans 3, verse 20. Y'all were just talking about Ezekiel. Is that what you were talking about, Ezekiel? Jeremiah. 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 Ezekiel says it too. It does. Ezekiel 36. But yeah, you're right. (laughs) Um, I just heard what you said. I didn't hear the reference. But Romans 3, 20, and I'll just probably read through um, 24. Very familiar. We read a lot. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ 
for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Um, I know I've talked with you about it before, but that, that idea of propitiation, where God... Um, I said this earlier, he put his wrath on Jesus. He poured out his wrath on his own son so that he could pour out grace on us, so to speak. So that great exchange that God made Christ who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. That's what that means by propitiation. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So again, that idea that... We're all sinners. We're all. Uh, our only hope was to keep the law, and we'd already broken that, so we really had no hope. But um, so what God did again, as our um, confession points out, making us willing and able to believe. How does He do that through propitiation, pouring out His wrath upon Jesus, so that Jesus could pay for the sins of those who would believe, and then, lo and behold. He comes and gets us, so to speak, and opens our eyes to hear this truth and gives us repentance so that we turn from our sin and we believe in Christ. And um, all of a sudden we realize that everything that's in the Bible is pointing toward this. Go right down to 31. 31. Do we then overthrow the law by by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Yeah. That's That's the only way we can. That's right. In Jesus. Absolutely. Uh, and two, I would also point out, so the propitiation is how our sins are taken away. But at that point, we're just neutral. We're back to where Adam was at. We need a positive righteousness. Exactly. And then, in tw- so in 26, it says it was to show his, God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just because he punishes sin and the justifier because he gives us a positive righteousness of the one who has faith in Jesus. So... That great exchange, um, Jesus receives our sin and he is punished for our sin, but we also receive his righteousness. So that when we stand before God, it is as if, well, it's not as if, it is. We're being judged on the basis of his righteousness. In other words, it can't be uh, that we've nullified uh, our sin. It's actually we've got to uh, literally have a righteousness also. Yeah. Yes. Which again is what takes away all boasting, right? Why none of us can. The, the Christian church ought to be the last place that there's arrogance and pride because we recognize this was me, and for whatever reason, God come and got me and, clean, and, and saved me and cleaned me up. So I don't have a right to. I have, I have no grounds to boast about that or to look down at others or think somebody's unsavable because, as we said before, it takes just as much. It took just as much grace and Jesus and um, this idea that we just talked about to save the worst sinner if we can categorize it as it does the sinner that's not sinned as much I guess you could say maybe it takes just as much grace to save a child as it does an adult in other words there's not there's not varying degrees and Jesus did what needed to be done for all of his people so when he said it is finished it was finished there was no more there was nothing left to be done so that's why he, as the Bible says, he gave up the ghost and died because he had done everything necessary to save his people. And um, 
I know we're going to go back and re really cover this later, but I just want to read over this because I think this summarizes everything we've been saying. In the very next section in the confession, um, the covenant, this covenant of grace is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect, the elect being just those of God, who, God's people. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. So again, all the stuff we already talked about. But um, I think that's the beauty of this idea of covenant is that, and I know Jonathan covered this last week, God initiates covenant and he keeps the covenant. Man has responsibility in the covenant. But ultimately, um, God is going to be the keeper of it. And he has never failed. He never failed in any of the covenants. In the, the divine covenants of the Old Testament, God was the one that failed. It was always man. And so certainly in the fulfillment of all those, which is the, the covenant of grace, which is, um, I mean, the new covenant, which is in Christ, he's certainly not going to fail. I mean, God will keep his promises and um, he'll save his people. And that's, again, why we also believe in perseverance of the saints because if we've been born again we can't be unborn again if we've been saved and our sins have been forgiven we can't get, we can't undo that because again based on the covenant God has done all that needs to be done and so the promise is kept in Jesus and not in us even though yeah we have the righteousness of Christ God keeps his promise based on Christ and not on us not on our righteousness and he sees us in the righteousness of Christ as opposed to our own works, which is good. Because we'd be in trouble, all of us, if we were going to get to God through our own merits. But that's a good um, summation of the covenant. But there's a lot of more intricate details and, and a lot of things that we probably need to talk about. But um, I guess we'll just have to start slowly going back through that over the next several weeks. But um, do you have any more questions or anything that you want to add to that from here? Anything y'all want to talk about from last week or y'all good from last week? The most impressive thing I heard last week, and no offense to your teaching, <laughs> was the fact that Miss Connie's read from cover to cover Grudem's systematic theology. <laughs> I was blown away by it. I read one and said, wait a minute, what's she say? Oh my gosh. Well, I, That's impressive. I went to your I was class. Like, I, <laughs> I was at the, the class that you taught and I learned so much. I just wanted to keep going. I mean, to keep going because I found, I mean, there was millions of things I didn't know it seemed like or ever flesh out Right. To I mean you know you ba the basics and but to actually get down to lower levels and lower levels and so forth but I found it certainly an interesting study and you know, yes it's a very thick line yeah it's not this big mm -hmm. 
So I was I was very impressed. But that's awesome. I've probably read it, not sit down cover to cover, but I've tried to get. I use it as a reference a lot. You know, systematic theology books are great for that. Um, that that's a. I, I don't have a problem with that one. It's still a good one. And um, Burkhoff is another good one. But uh, yeah, I was I was impressed by that. One. I was like, God. Well, I'm a, I'm a big reader, and once I start something, I like to get to the get to the end. You got to read to read that whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say I read it all at one time. Okay, fair but enough. I, you know, it's good stuff. It is. Learn quite a lot. Yeah. So we have to be careful about our theology around you now. Oh no! <laughs> you know my memory is not very good, so, but that's funny. Well, we'll keep we'll keep. Checking this thing out, going a little more detail. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, like I said, variations about what people even believe about the new covenant and about uh, the covenant of grace. And so, I have to figure out a way to teach through it without. I don't want to make it more confusing than it needs to be, but um, I think it'd be good to see, especially how our Baptist uh, forefathers have viewed it. And at least see those um, ideas and, and kind of work through those. And then before we move on, because the rest of you know, the next several sections have to do with um, God's covenant, but just you know, through Christ and His work, and um, we'll keep going that way. But well, essentially, chapter eight, you have Christ the mediator, and then you have a chapter on free will, and then after that, you have the benefits of the new covenant um, until you get to chapter 19. So, uh, for quite some time, this is all related to the covenant. Well, and, and I wanted to encourage you too. I'm, I'm glad you said that because it reminded me. Something reminded me. I want to encourage you, so when you're reading the Bible, you know, and don't skip the Old Testament because sometimes it does bog you down, but um, be looking. Always when you're reading the Bible, try to figure out what is this saying about God, of course, first. But especially when you're reading the Old Testament, what does this have to do with Jesus? How is Jesus going to fulfill this? I think if you look that, if you read the Old Testament with that in mind, even though it's simple, that's a simple way to do it, okay, what does this have to do with Jesus? It kind of helps you. You'll eventually get to something rather than just reading the Old Testament thinking, well, that's a good story. That's a good story. You know, that's interesting. What does it have to do with Jesus? Because it's it going to have something to do with him. <laughs> it's going to find its fulfillment in him eventually. And so that might help you along the way next time you're trying to read the Old Testament. It's, okay, what does this have to do with Christ? Oh, and actually, too, now that I'm looking at what all, every heading of the chapters, every chapter um, for the rest of this confession somehow ties back into covenant. Because you have the benefits of the covenant, and then you have the law of the covenant. And then you have the grace is mentioned again, and then we have liberty, so we have law and liberty. And then we have who's the covenant made with, and you have the covenant signs. And so really the rest of the confession is going to be tied back into where we're at right here. So, and that's why I said last week we're going to probably take this very slowly and want to be very thorough in how we cover this because... 
this is very important um, for while we're Reformed and then also while we're Baptist. Well, like I said last week, this is the first in, in my entire life that we have ever gone through like this and talked about the covenant and what it means and the importance of it and so forth. You know, in Sunday school class and things like that where uh, we usually learn or that's teaching and study. And I've always thought that the, the covenants were important, especially the covenant of grace, but no one has ever kind of explained it like this in detail and what what... <coughs> the extent of my part in it and the extent that God's part has already been given to me. So I find it fascinating and and so I don't know the word I want to use but so um, personal I guess it is because this is the most personal thing that you can imagine is the covenant that you have with God. And, but nobody has ever really talked about it that way. You know, you learn about the different covenants in the Old Testament that God, you know, the people would promise this and God would form the covenant and then in a little while they broke everything and you were back to square one. And so, right. So. But you really never were back to square You know, you really... Right, right. Um, the covenants were moving forward and doing what they're supposed to do. Well, God's doing what He's going to do. Yeah, and what man messed up. But you didn't really always realize that you had a you had a part in it. Yeah, and and that the people always seemed to fail. Right. And in that uh, same uh, Romans uh, uh, three passage, uh, what you've got is that uh, He literally uh, has set aside. Uh, those transgressions uh, until uh, Christ came and then what happened was that uh, then he laid all of that on Christ but basically it says he actually uh, withheld uh, judgment uh, until uh, Christ came along and then uh, all of that was paid for but basically the situation is he would have to he would have to actually judge uh, if it weren't for him literally uh, setting those things aside until later. Good. Anything else? Who else has read an entire systematic theology book? Uh, that's pretty I read Ryrie's. Oh, okay. It's a little smaller. <laughs> a lot smaller. Sorry. I didn't realize it was so rare. Yeah. <laughs> You're a rare individual. Well. You need. Did, you read, that did you read the Encyclopedia Britannica when it was a thing too? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I draw the lines on that. Yeah. <laughs> Grudem right. Well, though. He does. It's easy to read. For it to be a technical, yeah. technical word. 
Okay. Well, I can pray and dismiss, and we can keep talking and hang out or whatever. The kids are quiet. I don't know what They're happened. They're watching something. Oh. They're asleep. I was pretty impressed with that. They're coloring and probably watching. Hopefully not the Oscar award show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the blessing of life and the blessing to be able to study um, your revelation of yourself that you've given to us. And these things have been given to us and written down that we might understand. And you say they even belong to us. And um, we thank you for that. And I pray you'd help us to understand them. Um, and we just pray you give us greater faith in you and your son Jesus Christ and um, forgive us uh, for the times we don't study and we don't look hard enough to, to discover more truth about you but um, we do pray for a desire to, to learn more and to teach others and I just continue to bless your church right here in this little building we pray in Jesus name Amen